You're listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. Enjoy this exciting message from Senior Pastor Robin McMillan. We've been studying 1 John. Andy started the series a couple of weeks ago. And um, what I want to talk about today is spiritual disorientation. Spiritual disorientation. It's going to take me a little while to get to it. So if you'll help me, if you'll be patient with me as we make this trip, I really do think it'll be worth it. I believe the Lord will. I believe this morning the Lord will explain to us a little bit about some of the things we go through or have gone through, perhaps will go through. And give us some encouragement about it. So let's begin by reading 1 John 1, 1 through 4. And why don't, uh, why don't you stand while we read this? That'll be a different thing. And let's read it out loud together, okay? We saw him with our very own eyes. We gazed upon him and heard him speak. Our hands actually touched him. The one who was from the beginning, the living expression of God. This life giver was made visible, and we have seen him. We testify to this truth. The eternal life giver lived face to face with the Father and has now dawned upon us. So we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard about this life giver so that we may share and enjoy this life together. For truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus, the Anointed One. We are writing these things to you because we want to release to you our fullness of joy. Okay, you you may be seated. That was from the Passion Translation. I really like a lot of what I find there. John the Apostle wrote these words. He also wrote the Gospel of John. And in addition to this epistle, two other epistles. So he wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. And then the book of Revelation had a lot to do with John. Um, So he wrote a lot. He wrote the Gospels early on. He wrote the epistles, I believe, later on to reinforce the truth of what he wrote in the Gospel of John. So, in the introductory notes to 1 John from that Passion Translation, we find that John gave four reasons why he wrote uh, this letter. The first was to bring us into life union or to bring us into fellowship with God. The second was that we might experience the fullness of joy. The third is that we might not sin And the fourth is that we might have a full assurance of our salvation. So that's a little brief uh, introductory to four specific reasons John wrote uh, the epistle 1 John. We also discover John's reason for writing the gospel, the gospel of John. So there's the gospel of John in the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then there are the epistles, and this is one of the Epistles, But in the Gospel of John, we find this. And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not 
written in this book. But these are written that you may believe. Let me read that again. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So believing in Jesus gives you access to a new kind of life. It's another different kind of quality of life than what we have. It's a source of living. John wanted everyone to experience that kind of life. It's pretty amazing. John, John saw him, Jesus. John heard him, heard his words. And John touched him. And his life was never the same. It wasn't without disturbance. You know, how many of you know there can be a disturbance in the force? There can be trouble. But John had met Jesus in a way that enabled him to live through trouble and come out the other side. And I think, I think that's really important. Um, John enjoyed a unique relationship with Jesus. Along with his brother James and his cousin Peter, there were, according to the text, the three closest friends or disciples that Jesus had. And it appears from what we read that John was the closest of the three to Jesus. And um, many, many believe that John was a, a late teenager um, when, when he was Jesus, like you could say he was Jesus' closest friend. Isn't that remarkable? That John experienced everything he experienced as a young, young man. Well, Jesus shared things with John that he didn't share with anyone else. Uh, you can see this in John 13, 21 through 20, 26. How would you like to have the kind of relationship with God where he would confide in you? Where he would maybe tell you that, you know, it's relational. It's not you earn it, but it's, it's relational. Um, we have a relationship with God. And he could reveal things to us that he might not just tell everybody for our benefit, for our help. Now, sometimes he just may want to find somebody he wants to talk to. Have you ever thought about that? That God may just want to talk to somebody. Um, so at the Last Supper or at the last meal Jesus shared with them, we find this in John 13, that Jesus was moved deeply in the spirit, verse 21, Looking at his disciples, he announced, I tell you the truth, one of you is about to betray me. Eyeing each other, can you see the scene here? Jesus makes this startling, troubling announcement. One of you is going to betray me. Then it says, eyeing each other. So what are, they, what, are the, what, are the, <laughs> what are the 12 apostles doing? Checking each other out, see who the scoundrel is. That's great. I love that. You know, these guys are pretty typical people. Eyeing each other, the disciples puzzled over which one of them could do such a thing. Verse 23 says, the disciple that Jesus dearly loved, that's the way John described himself. I'll talk about that again in a minute. The disciple that Jesus dearly loved was at the right of him at the table and was leaning his head on Jesus. Now, you got to picture this. When they had the Last Supper, they ate at a low table, and they were all on the floor, and they would be on their sides. They'd be leaning on their elbows and they'd be eating with their right hand, leaning on or towards the guy next to them, all the way around that table. That's the way they 
they ate. They didn't use tables and chairs like we did. They, they did it that way. So apparently Jesus was there telling these apostles, these friends of his, that one of them was going to betray him. And they're trying to question who was it, who would possibly do this. Then Peter gestured to this disciple, John, to ask Jesus who it was he was referring to. Then the dearly loved disciple leaned into Jesus' chest and whispered, Master, who is it? And then Jesus told him this, and he didn't tell anyone else, but he said, the one I give this piece of bread to you, to, the one I give this piece of bread to, after I've dipped it in the bowl, Jesus replied. Then he dipped the piece of bread in the bowl and handed it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And so the point being made here is that John's letter reflects a person who perhaps knew Jesus the best of anyone who ever lived during that time. And his letters, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, reinforce much of what he said in the Gospels. So John actually laid his head, you could say this, he laid his head on God's chest. He laid his head on the chest of Jesus while reclining at the Passover meal. That's what we see here. Jesus told him something he had not told anyone else apparently. And John described himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. So John used this unique way to describe himself in his gospel. He never once mentions his name in his gospel. But four times on at least four occasions, he would speak of himself as the disciple whom, whom Jesus loved. That's how he identified who he was. Think about that. That became John's identity. He was the disciple whom Jesus loved. John called himself that. No one else did. Let me say that again. John called himself that. No one else did. They may not have told, known or understood or perceived that John was this treasured, treasured disciple. But see, that's, that's how John saw himself. I think that's potent. I can remember awakening one morning early, early when you're sort of asleep and sort of awake. And I felt like the Lord whispered this to me. Each one of my children is my own special favorite. Each one is my favorite. And I thought about that, but he wasn't through. Then he said, but very few believe it. Very few believe it. And uh, I don't know that John had a unique relationship with Jesus. I'm sort of pointing out that he did, but I think the real point is you could have that personal way to identify yourself as well. It's, it's not relegated to one person, one man in all of time. No, it's supposed to be the norm. What would a church be like if everyone that came truly, I don't mean, hey, let's try this out, but truly identified themselves as the disciple that Jesus loved. What would that be like when we come together? What would it be like when you're with one another, fellowshipping, be, be potent? And so that was John's perspective. That was John's perspective on faith. That was the foundation of his faith was how he knew Jesus felt about him. That's what he wanted people to know. 
when he wrote what we saw in 1 John 1, 4, that we saw him, we gazed upon him, which means we looked closely at him with perception. See, the, there were actually two phrases in what we read earlier that talk about seeing him and looking upon him. And what he was saying was, it's not just that we saw him, but we did. It's that we looked at him intently and perceived and understood accurately who he was. That's what John's saying there. We touched him. We heard him. Interestingly enough, our song earlier was about seeing and hearing in a relationship with the Lord. That's exactly what John is telling us. We had this, this is why we're writing to you. And, and the idea of the letters is for you to be able to enter in to the same experience or the same level of intimacy uh, that John talks about. Maybe it's not automatic. Maybe it, I don't believe it is, but it's relational. It's something you can pursue. It's something you can set your heart on. Uh, to know that God can be known. I mean, that you know, you go to church and say, hey, here's a message, God can be known. But that's an amazing message, isn't it? That God can be known. He's not this, he's not only this invisible, omnipotent, omni-knowledgeable, all, he's not only all of that, he's also someone who can be known. And the way we know him is the way John describes him in the Gospels and in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. We know him. We want you to know him too. He's knowable. Here's who he's like as he wrote the Gospel and tells the stories of Jesus. We saw him. We gazed upon him. We touched him. We heard him. It really is all about him. How much he loves us. How he changes us through his love and not just grace, grace and truth. Those are two inseparable things, for the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Christ Jesus. So, knowing this, knowing him, knowing Jesus, the way John talked about, truly experiencing God's love for us changes our lives. Okay, that's a little bit of an introduction, both of First John and also of the, of the author. But I want to shift gears a moment because I want us to get to this idea of a spiritual disorientation. I want us to see um, how it happens, what it means, and what we can do about it. So on many people's minds and hearts, um, this week, particularly since last Sunday, has been the tragic loss of Kobe Bryant and his daughter Gianna, that he called Gigi, and seven others in a helicopter accident. And it really has captured the attention of the nations. Everybody been seeing that, maybe feeling that, the emotion of it. Um, to me, uh, Michael Jordan was, say, my Kobe Bryant my generation, so to speak, but it's been remarkable just um, the depth of emotion, um, how this tragedy has touched so many people. As a result, there has been heartache, sadness, but not just among those people that knew him personally, but through people who watched him play 
appreciated what he did. And, and then I think a lot of people just hurt for those families. You know, when you see lives taken, um, you know, at such a young age or uh, it really, um, I think it, it really stirred so many people, not just in Los Angeles, but in the nation. And there's an ongoing conjuncture. This is the one of the things I, I began to think about. There's an ongoing uh, conju- conjecture about what caused the crash. One thing is fairly well known. It's very obvious that the fog was so dense in Los Angeles that morning that the police department had grounded their crews. And so I had read um, an article that was in the, uh, I found it online, but it comes from the Los Angeles Times. Um, And it talks about what can happen to pilots who fly in that kind of condition where you have basically zero visibility. And so I'm jumping into the middle of this article, and it's basically talking about um, a man whose last name is Lawrence who was a seasoned accident investigator. This was his take on it. Uh, One thing they knew is the helicopter rapidly rose into the clouds in a zoom climb. Lawrence said the pilot could have become spatially disoriented. So we're talking about spatial disorientation. I'll tell you about that a little bit in a minute. He became spatially disoriented as he peered from the helicopter to get his bearings, a condition involving the inner ear that can result in the inability to tell up from down. In some instances, pilots trying to level their aircraft have wound up punching the nose over and sending it plummeting into the ground. Now, pilots are aware that spatial disorientation can happen really, really quickly, said Lawrence, um, noting that pilots are trained to react by relying on their instrument readings. Here was his sort of conclusion. The only way you live is to pay attention to your instruments. The only way you live. And um, I have a friend who's a pilot, owns his own plane, and we talked about this years ago. And he was telling me about spatial disorientation, and he said 100% of the pilots who are flying have spatial orientation and don't have their instrument rating or read their instruments accurately crash. 100%. So it's serious. And it can happen to anyone. Let me, let me tell you a little bit of the definition. Spatial disorientation is defined as the inability of a pilot to correctly interpret aircraft attitude, altitude, or airspeed in relation to the earth or other points of reference. This most commonly occurs after a reference point, like the horizon, has been lost Spatial disorientation occurs when air crew's sensory interpretation of their position or motion conflicts with reality. And so what you have is you, the way you um, determine up and down and what's level, what's right, or your balance is there's a relationship between what you see and a mechanism in your inner ear that involves hairs and fluid and 
it gives you your sense, really, it gives you your sense of, of reality of what's really out there. And, um, but they say that spatial disorientation, if not corrected, can lead to both loss of control and not only loss of control, but controlled flight into the terrain. Let me read some more in the definition of this. The possibility of becoming spatially disoriented is hardwired into all humans. In fact, it is the proper function of our spatial orientation system, which provides the illusion. And because this is a system we have learned to trust, it is particularly difficult for some people in some circumstances to accept that their orientation isn't what it appears to be. Despite the capability, accuracy, reliability, and flexibility, let me read that again. Despite the capability, the accuracy, the reliability, and the flexibility of modern flight displays and instrumentation, pilots can still find themselves questioning what the aircraft is telling them because the, quote, seat of their pants or, quote, gut feeling is saying something else. So your gut feeling is it is this way, but in reality, it's not. That's what it is to be spatially disoriented. Um, whether avoiding, this goes on to say, whether avoiding or recovering from all types of spatial disorientation and visual illusions the remedy is the same, and that is always scan, read, and follow serviceable flight and navigation instruments. So you basically have two options if you're in that situation. Listen to the voice from the control power, control tower, or pay attention to your instruments. I mentioned this earlier. Pilot friend of mine told me 100% of the people in spatial disorientation who do not have instruments crash their plane. You remember 1999, JFK, John F. K. Uh, Kennedy Jr. off the coast of um, Martha's Vineyard, he crashed going out to sea when he was supposed to be landing for, I think he was taking his wife to, uh, to something there on Martha's Vineyard. Well, he didn't have his instrument rating. He shouldn't have been flying. That's what it came down to because he became spatially disoriented. Pilots, jet pilots, I read this. It happened to be a, a, a lady jet pilot turned off uh, her controls that determined altitude and all of that, and, and she was doing rolls and practicing different, uh, you know, maneuvers. And when she stopped, she was upside down. And didn't know it. So when she accelerated, she accelerated down to her own to her own peril. That's how dangerous that is. Spatial disorientation. Now I want to talk about spiritual disorientation, which I think a number of people in this room have experienced. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about my story. But as I read this article on spatial disorientation, I began to see parallels between it and what happens to Christians or believers. It happens to anybody, but I'm talking to Christians or believers. 
people who go through certain kinds of traumatic events, something tragic happens or something painful pushes into your life, or there's a major disappointment that takes you by surprise, um, something confusing imposes itself on you. You feel abandoned. Maybe you feel abandoned by God. You may or may not have been abandoned by people. But the way you feel is God has abandoned me or this doesn't make sense or this isn't what I signed up for or why would this happen or what's the matter with people? All of those. Anybody slightly interested in the rest of this message this morning? Well, the effect of the painful experience is like a spiritual disorientation. You become confused, disheartened. Who am I talking to? Disheartened, disappointed in people. No one here, I'm sure. Disappointed in God, bitter or angry. Your emotions are in a free fall. You, you lose your relational bearings. You lose your spiritual bearings. The thing of the situation you were counting on disappeared or dematerialized or someone took it from you. You may feel exactly like you're flying blind, but much like spatial disorientation, you may not be able to navigate your circumstance by relying on your gut feel or successfully navigate by flying by the seat of your pants. So what do you do? Anybody, anybody, does this register with anybody this morning? Somebody yeah. wave at me a little bit. In Jamaica, if they're preaching good, they wave their handkerchiefs at you. Uh, if not, they say, uh, if in five minutes you don't strike oil, stop boring. <laughs> in other words, Next. So what do you have to stabilize your life if you can't trust how you feel? If you can't trust what you see, if you're in an emotional free fall? One thing, never make important decisions in emotional disorientation or spiritual disorientation. Don't, don't. But what do you do? What do you have to guide you when your emotions are raw? When your desires for even desire for forbidden things begin to emerge, when you're depressed, when you're dealing with a hopeless situation, what do you have to stabilize your life, to help you find a safe place to avoid shipwreck or survive shipwreck? What's your instrument panel? Who or what's your voice from the control tower? So I want to tell you, I've got about two paragraphs of my own experience because I've been through spiritual disorientation. It's frightening. It is. How many of you this morning during worship could sense that tenderness of the Lord? Yeah. Well, he, he, uh, he really wants to help you. I know I need help. Anybody need help in here? I know I need help. I felt that tenderness, and there's so uh, there's so many things to be healed from, right? Not just physical things, emotional things, and relational things. And I think the Lord wants to give us some insight and really help us with that. But 
I gave my life to the Lord in the summer of 1968. And the next year I went to uh, college at Erskine College and I graduated with a bachelor's degree in 1973. And then the September of 1976, Donna and I married. And by April of the following year, we moved into a, a Christian community and we lived there um, about eight years, give or take. But I think it was like 19, it was, I know it was from 1977, I think to 1985. And the church that we attended bought a 95-acre tract of land near Charlotte to develop this Christian community. And that's where we, we moved in April of 77. Now, other places like ours they sprang up all over the country. And uh, Donna and I, those who lived on the farm, what we did was we dedicated our resources to paying off the note and building houses for others in our church who felt called to live there. We farmed. We heated with wood. We considered raising turkeys to capture methane gas. <laughs> I, I don't know. It, we had some cows. We built cabins for summer retreats, and we built a church building there. But Don and I had committed ourselves to this corporate vision of community. It wasn't a full-on commune. But it was communal. I mean, it was, I don't, I mean, it, yeah, it was a community, but, uh, well, just let me tell you. Most of us worked full-time jobs. Three of our four children were born while we lived there. Here's how we handled our finances. We paid all our bills, then we gave the rest to the farm. So there wasn't any idea of tithing. It was, it was more than that, really. But we were trying to pay off this farm because we, we were wanting to demonstrate the kingdom of God. And we wanted to live much like the early church lived. Did anybody know I was this weird? Anybody? <laughs> Is this <laughs> news to anyone? By the way, I don't recommend doing this. <laughs> no, I highly recommend not doing it. That's different than... Uh... But... You know, 2020 hindsight, right? I don't really mean that, though. It made me in some ways. It made me in some ways that I wouldn't, I wouldn't. It gave me some things I needed and took away some things I didn't need. And messed with a bunch of other stuff I'm still working on. So we wanted to demonstrate the kingdom of God. We wanted to live much like we thought the early church lived in that relational um, situation. We wanted to be as spiritual as possible. A little bit of arrogance mixed in there made it pretty volatile, I think. But uh, we were very, very idealistic but didn't know it. We really thought everybody was supposed to be doing that. Little did we know that we would discover more about human nature, ours and everyone else's, than we were prepared to handle. For instance, we planted a garden, but soon very few were willing to work it because no one knew how much of the produce would be theirs. Let that reside on you there. For those that live there, 
like I said, we'd work our weekly job. Then we would spend all day Saturday working there on the, on the farm. Not at first, but eventually things fell apart. Without going into any more details, and there are other details, what Charles Dickens began um, one of his novels with, it was the best of times and worst of times. And that really was what it was. We were, well, we, we did that. We actually got engaged in that whole process because of the, the awesome fellowship we knew as new believers. Now, not completely new believers. I mean, I was a number of years into it. Uh, I had known the Lord, but there was such a, a marvelous presence of the Lord when we got together. And we just, I mean, it was, it was amazing. So we thought, well, it would be even better. Um, well, Donna and I decided to leave. We left broke. Um, I don't think we even had any appliances, did we? I think I took one appliance I might not have should have taken, and it broke on the way. And I was a little bit angry, so I just <laughs> went with. They gave this to us, not the corporate entity. So, but it didn't even make it. It was broke. So. Um, I had to borrow money from my mother to rent a house. Very humiliating. Why? Because she didn't want me to go live out there in the beginning and told me so. To add to my challenges, my father passed away from a sudden heart attack a few years earlier, right in the middle of it. I had no warning about his health condition. I didn't have a chance to reconnect with him in a meaningful way that I would like to. So all that was really difficult to deal with since we'd grown apart and part of it was because of the choices I made to serve the Lord. I think there was a legitimate, I have to do this to serve the Lord. But then, you know, my attitude wasn't always really, really good. And so, to make matters worse, after we left, I started a church, changed jobs. Our fourth child was on the way, and we moved to another house. And I, I've... We had four out of the top five reasons you should have a nervous breakdown. Yeah, we only missed one of them, and I'm not sure what it was, but I'm glad we missed that one. But, uh, but what I did, I found myself in a spiritual freefall. A real kind of spiritual, spiritual disorientation. I was disappointed. I was disillusioned. I mean, when you just give yourself to something, I mean, lock, stock, and keyhole, man, you're in. And then you lose everything you put in, and you have to borrow money from your widow mother to rent a house that turned out to be roach-infested. You're, you're, not, you're not really happy. Now, the air conditioner didn't work that well either, come to think about it. <laughs> I was in a mess. Disappointed, disillusioned, bitter. I began to have physical problems. The vision I had for the church, for my family's life, for me personally, my sense of calling had all gone up in smoke. 
And I mean, this, this wasn't just some little thing. We had lived there. We, had, we were all in. We're going to make this thing awesome. Then I began to have panic attacks. And honestly, I came, I came pretty close to just, it's a great opportunity to just bag my faith and say, I'm done with this. But I, I didn't. How did I survive? How did I return to a healthy spiritual state of mind? Well, it didn't happen overnight. I'll tell you that. But several things worked in my, uh, to my benefit. I had developed over that first 16 years of my Christian life a strong hunger for the Word, for the Scriptures, for the Bible. I found verses that helped sustain me when it seemed like everything I believed for and worked for was gone. My instrument panel became God's promises to me that I found in the Scripture. The Bible, in its simplest way, became to me a stabilizing influence when my gut feeling, I didn't even want to read the Bible. My gut feeling was I don't want to have anything to do with anybody. And that's pretty rough when you just started a church. You're having panic attacks <laughs> on the verge of a nerve. Really, I felt like I was having a walking nervous breakdown. But the Bible became my instrument panel. It became something that, in a, in a good sense, it disregarded my emotional state. It simply told me things, told me things, spoke to me. This is truthful things here. You feel this way, you're wrong. See, and it, it, one, of, one of the purposes behind, I think, some of our difficulties is to bring into our lives a level of humility that we don't uh, normally have. It's not natural. Nobody's naturally humble. Well, I would have stopped going to church. I would have quit. But I had these three young boys, and I had another one on the way, and I remember this verse of Scripture out of Hebrews. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So there's a day approaching, ladies and gentlemen, that we will weather well based on the condition of our lives in relationship to not just the Lord, but other people. Because you can't go it alone. You can't do it. You, you, you can't do it. And so I humbled myself and I said, I got these three boys. I'm responsible for. I've got this dear woman I married. I'm, I'm just going to go to a church. I went to a church so close to the house I could leave late and get there early. <laughs> well, at one point, and here's, here's so, so there's the instrument panel, but then there's the voice from the tower. Now, the problem I had was I was so disoriented, I didn't know if God was speaking to me or not. 
But there was this given point where the Lord really did speak to me. And he asked me this. He said, what are you afraid of? Because he knew I was in a mess. I was troubled, disoriented. I really felt like I was going to lose my mind. And I told the Lord, I said, Lord, I'm afraid I'm going to lose my mind. And he said, I won't let you. That's what he said. He said, I won't let you. What does it say? The Lord is my keeper. Do you need a keeper? I need a keeper. Yeah, the Lord is my keeper. I think it says he's the shade on my right hand. So my instrument panel became the scripture. I couldn't depend on how I felt. My gut feeling didn't work. But I began more and more to put my trust in the Lord. The things in the word I didn't understand, I just put them over on the side. And I said, you sit over there. I'll look at you later. And I just looked at the promises. I just looked at the promises. When I talk about the, the voice from the tower, what I'm really talking about is, of course, your personal relationship with the Lord. But sometimes you're so um, disoriented, it's the best word, you don't know what God is saying. I mean, you know the Bible, but I mean in your relational decision-making realm there. And so the love of my wife... And the counsel and encouragement of other believers who had gone through similar things and had come out of them stronger were the people I would talk to. I just, I had to, I just had to humble myself. I just went to talk. I asked for help. And I had a lot of, a lot of forgiving to do. Honestly, I was bitter. I'd been disappointed. I felt like I'd gotten a bad deal. I felt like I'd given everything and I'd lost it. We were married. I think 10 years before we ever bought a house. We gave that up. We put that in. We threw that in. That was our devotion. And I don't regret it. How can you ultimately regret what you do by your own choice for him? Don't regret it. Don't lose don't lose that offering. Don't lose it. It costs too much. So just a couple of ideas. When you're in that state, remember, God loves you. Let's say this together. God loves me. Let's say that again, just in case. This is a profound message. <laughs> God loves me. 
Rely on the clear teachings of the Bible. Don't get off in the stuff that, you know, people say, God, what a mess with this Bible. What a mess without it. Right? You think this is a mess. Don't have the gospel of John. Don't have Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, First and Second Timothy, and on. The Psalms. Whoo. The Lord is my shepherd. David was saying this. His son was trying to kill him. He was leaving in tears from the Jerusalem, barefoot with some of his followers, did not know if he was going to live or die. And so what did he sing? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. But your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. My cup runs over, which literally in the Septuagint means you intoxicate me with the finest wine. He was destitute, afraid for his life, leaving his kingdom because of the relational difficulty he had with uh, Absalom. And that was what he, when he wrote the 23rd Psalm. Anything he said in that Psalm was not true in his experience at that moment. But he knew the Lord well enough to know this shall pass. I don't know how I'm getting out of this mess, but I'm going to get out of it. I don't know where help's coming from, but I know it's going to come from the Lord because he's the God of heaven and earth. Don't trust your gut instincts, but make a conscious decision to trust the Lord. Stay in communication. Don't allow yourself to be alienated from other believers. Forgive. Let's say that together. Forgive. And realize that Jesus is not like the people who hurt you. And you're not like Jesus either. Oops. I know we're all saints, but we still got to deal with some baggage. Acknowledge your responsibility in the conflict and your potential to hurt others. Practice being thankful. It's a key to emotional health. Try not to make any significant decisions until you stabilize. And here's the last one. Lighten up. Take a deep breath. Go to Carowinds. <laughs> now you think that's a joke. In, the, in one of the worst places I'd ever been in my life spiritually, a friend of mine said, hey, my wife and I are going to Carowinds. You want to go? And I said, no, I don't want to go. He said, no, come on. Come on, go. I went to Carowinds. And you see what happens is so many of these things make us self-absorbed. And we tell our story over and over and over about how we've been mistreated. You got to quit. You know, once you get it out, I mean, you, you need to be honest. I'm not saying you stuff, but there's a point where you just need to be done with your story. You can't live back there. You really, you got to be done with it. You got to, you can't live in the rear view mirror. You're going to wreck. You got to watch the road. You got to look forward. God loves you. He's given us the Bible to help us. When your gut feeling 
disoriented. It's gone. What do you do? Well, you, you just trust God. Find somebody you respect and ask for help. Yeah. There are a lot of other things. You can praise the Lord. That's a scary thing to praise God in the midst of your seeming destruction. But there's something about that that, that breeds faith, that being grateful, that looking at the disaster if you're in that place. Now, this is not life. I mean, all of life is not this picture I'm painting. But there are points in life that may be you praise God. You, you take a... You forget about yourself to the degree you can. And you say, Lord, who's in it for the long haul? I'm in it for the long haul. I got nothing else. I got nothing else. So good. Uh, Robin and I talk a lot about uh, not giving a PS to a really great sermon. I'm about to break that rule right now. Um, so forgive me in advance, but I just have a very quick prophetic word and a testimony that I want y'all to hear. And I'm telling you this because I want to draw your attention to something that the Lord is doing in our church right now. And this is for us corporately and for us individually. Uh, we meet for staff meeting on Monday mornings and on, on this past Monday morning, it was, uh, Robin and Donna, Amy and myself and Chris and Brandy. We have, we, you know, it's staff meeting. It's we're running through all the stuff we need to do for the week. Well, this past Monday, we had this moment where the Lord walked into the room and he began speaking to us in a very dramatic way. And it felt like there was a massive shift within our, within our leadership team where like the Lord was accelerating us from unbelief to an incredible amount of belief. Sometimes we feel like we don't have it within us to get to where we need to go. Well, the Lord has this thing, it's called the spirit of acceleration, where he can take you where you need to be without your own strength. But what, all you need to do is say yes to him. I was, I was with the Lord a couple of Friday nights ago, and the Lord said this thing to me where he said, you know, the distance from unbelief to belief for somebody that wants to go there is like less than a millimeter, but it's infinite for a person who doesn't want to go from unbelief to belief, right? So, so it starts with a yes, all right? And I just want to give you this. Um, so essentially what, what Robin is preaching on is he's preaching on the Bible, the word of God, the prophetic voice of the Lord speaking to us. And in some, sometimes that seems like it is a big, uh, just like, well, duh, right? Like, oh yeah, read the Bible. But then sometimes the Lord himself comes to us and he says, read the Bible. And it's, it's everything. It's totally different. So here's the testimony part of what I want to tell you. Amy and I, over the last 30 days, we've done two things differently than we do normally. We've not had any alcohol, and we've been reading the Bible pretty regularly, okay? I'm not against alcohol, but the Lord just, just was challenging us. Hey, try something different. Shift gears. Try another thing, you know? And so, like, it's not a magic pill that we took, but it was like, it was like, it we had a hunger to know the Lord in a little bit different way. And so we just took this step in a certain direction. And, and my testimony is this. It opened up everything to us. Like where we didn't really care about the Lord anymore, this small hunger started growing in our hearts. 
like we began to like really have a desire for worship. We had a desire to be with fellow believers who were talking and encouraging with each other in the Lord again. Like, like we used to feel that way and now we feel that way again and it's pretty great. It's like a better way to live. You know, like we used to be Christians who cared about Jesus and now we are that again, like all of a sudden, you know? And so, um, why don't we just stand up together? We'll close out. If, and if, do you, do you feel what Robin's talking about this morning? I mean, do you feel the Lord drawing on us as a church? I, I just feel that. I get the sense. That the and, and Randall said this last week. He, it was kind of tricky when he said it. He's like, you know, you don't really need to read your Bible more or pray more. You really need an awakening. Well, I say both of those things are true. You need an awakening in your heart so that when you read the Bible, it's coming alive to you. So let's just ask Jesus to help us with that. Amen. Because he can do it. So, Father, we love you today. We we are so excited about what you're saying to us. We're so glad and happy that you are leading us beside still waters. You're leading us into green pastures. And no matter where we happen to be in our life, God, you really do want to take us into the fullness of your goodness. And I pray for every person who, who thinks that that is not for them. And Lord, I just pray, well, I don't, I'm not praying this to you. I'm declaring it over all these people who might not think that the goodness of the Lord is for them. I say that is for you. And Jesus has your best in his heart. And Father, we thank you for what you're doing and how you're transforming us into your likeness. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. We do have prayer ministry teams available today. If you want more prayer, if you want somebody to pray with you, pray over you, come up here to the front. We've got some folks here that would love to pray with you. The rest of you, go home and watch the Super Bowl. You've been listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church.